This is the future of public roadway transit debate. The best of times or the toughest of times? Hi, I'm Fred Fishkin, thanking you for joining in to watch or listen, and we hope you are staying safe. This event is made possible in part by support from the Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. Find out more at motoetf.com. This live debate features Jared Walker and Associates President Jared Walker on the best of times side of the argument against Cato Institute Senior Fellow Randall O'Toole. Those of you who registered early enough on Zoom will be able to participate along with an amazing group of sharks, including Jerome Luton, an independent consultant who has worked in, written and lectured about transit and transportation for many years, Princeton University Professor Alan Kornhauser, Faculty Chair for Autonomous Vehicle Engineering, and much more. Digital Age pioneer, author, and consultant Brad Templeton, and Michael Senna, also a well-known consultant and editor of the Dispatcher newsletter. Our moderator who will get things started is Compass Transportation and Technology President and Founder, Dick Mudge. Dick? Are we all set to go? Um, uh, Randall, for some reason, volunteered to go first. Uh, Randall, do you want to start your uh, your half of the debate? Sure. Uh, first of all, I want to say I'm very happy to, to be here with Jarrett Walker, who I consider to be uh, the most innovative uh, person in the transit industry. And I really respect and admire the work he has done. And I uh, urge transit agencies that haven't followed his work to do so. But uh, the difference between Jarrett and I is that he thinks there's a future for transit, and I don't in the long run. Uh, I think in the short run, it's been declining already. Uh, in 2019, transit buses carried fewer transit riders than any year since 1939, and it's going to get much worse. Uh, looking at the pandemic, the biggest change that we're going to see is that a lot more people are going to be working at home. Uh, most studies agree that about 30% of American workers could work at home. Uh, currently, only about 5% do. I expect that's going to go to at least 15%. We have companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, Barclays, Twitter, and others saying that they're going to allow a lot more of their employees to work at home because it's going to save them money. And what they've really discovered during the pandemic was that many people who are working at home are more productive than they were working in an office. So that's going to take, take away 10% of transit riders right there. It's also going to take 10% of cars off the road, which is going to mean less congestion. And with less congestion, people who were taking transit before because they didn't want to deal with congestion are going to switch back to driving. So between those two things, we're going to have 20%, I expect, a 20% decline in transit ridership. You add up other things like the fact that almost 40% of people who live in cities have told pollsters that they're thinking of moving to lower density areas. Jobs are gonna to move to lower density areas. Both of those combined are gonna be bad for transit. I can't imagine that transit is ever gonna carry as much as 75% as many people as it carried in 2019. So we're gonna see a huge decline in transit and we also have to ask, what is going to be the resilient transportation in our future? Uh, in the last 20 years, we've had terrorist attacks. We've had natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina. 
We've had financial disasters like the 2008 fiscal crisis. And we've had uh, 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 pandemics now. And in every single case, and I've written a paper for about this that you can find on my website, which is at anti, called anti, The Anti-Planner. Uh, in every single case, the automobile and highways is a much more resilient form of transportation than urban transit, which is why I think in the long run, transit is on its way out. Jared? No, Jared, uh, let me say, Jared, you don't have to open by saying something nice about Randall. <laughs> well, I appreciate I appreciate Randall. Uh, Randall's been at this doing doing this a long time, um, laying out I think a very clear argument from his point of view. Um, there is nobody I know in the uh, world of transit advocacy who does not know who Randall O'Toole is, um, and who um, is not broadly familiar with his argument. So, I think Randall's been effect very effective at putting that argument out there. Um, Look, we're in a black swan moment, right? We're in an unpredicted, unpredictable event where um, things are changing in a very nonlinear way. <clears throat> and one of the things that's funny about this moment is that it's a good opportunity to observe how desperate we all are for predictions, how desperate we all are to have someone tell us they know what the future is going to be like. You know, no, none of the, none of what has happened in the last few months has stopped, you know, the major, um, you know, all of the major financial advisors out there who make it their business to predict the unemployment rate from predicting the unemployment rate. You know, you can find, you can find uh, projections of the unemployment rate in mid 2021 as though anybody could possibly know, as though that is remotely knowable information. So likewise, I think that we have to be careful about the notion that anyone can really know how COVID is going to affect uh, uh, cities, urban development, urban transportation. Um, like, like Randall, I have my own hunches, which tend to be along the lines of believing that I was right all along. And that, you know, if you ask me to make predictions, I'll probably predict that things will work out in such a way as to vindicate beliefs that I've always had. But the reality is we don't know. And you know, you can write, it seems reasonable, you know, phrases like it seems reasonable to assume, and you can assume one thing and I can assume another, and we don't know. Um, prediction is also pretty much bound up with sales. Um, we've had lots and lots of predictions about when various technologies will be realized, which are really inseparable from the process of trying to sell those technologies. So I basically try to get through the day without making predictions about anything that I'm not really sure about. And what we're all sure about is the continued reality of mathematical and physical facts. And I think we're still sure, we're, con, we're sure about a few things about human beings that mostly arise from their nature as animals and from what we can infer from biology. But when it comes to cities, and I'm going to talk here for mostly about the city as we understand it, high density, lots of people living close together, which is the essence of what a city is. We can have a separate conversation about whether people are still going to want cities, you know, whether everyone's going to move to Camp Sherman, which, which would be its own kind of problem, uh, whether everyone's going to move to some rural town. Um, but um, fundamentally, you know, I, I want to address the question of what public transit is in, in, in high density cities, because that's where, that's where it excels. 
Um, the definition of a city is that is that there are lots of people in little space, which means that there is not much space per person, which means that just as we teach children to share their toys, we need to learn to share space. And if we simply seize space from other people based on, you know, the, 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 the power of our vehicle to make them get out of the way, um, we're fundamentally taking space away from other people, taking opportunity away from other people. That's why just mathematically, when we think about the dense city, all of the solutions that are equitable involve sharing, involve not taking more than your fair share of space. And there are two ways we can do that in transportation. One is by using a vehicle that's not much bigger than your body, that's micromobility. Bicycles, scooters, whatever else gets invented in that space. And the other is a, is a vehicle that carries lots of people and that operates in a path that lots of people find useful, and that's what high ridership public transit is. Um, it's also worth noting that in high-density cities, it's not just a matter of sharing space for transportation. Because so many people live in apartments, they need public space to do everything that a suburban person would do in their backyard. So it's also important, uh, so also competing for space in cities is the need for public space, the need for space to live in, not just space to move through. So fundamentally, then, we come back to this question of ridership. You know, uh, um, Randall has laid out some ridership statistics. Um, uh, and the question is really, how do those matter and do those matter? If public transit is a, were a business and were engaged in a competition with other businesses, um, then obviously its ridership would matter enormously. That's how we would measure how it's succeeding. And many journalists unconsciously evaluate it that way, as though that's what we're trying to do. But right now, obviously, ridership is clearly not the reason we're running public transit systems. We're running public transit so that essential workers can get to work so that civilization doesn't collapse. Um, it's never been a particularly good indicator because, for example, there are many reasons why public transit might want to lose ridership to certain other modes. For example, it's probably a good thing for our cities if relatively short trips under about two miles shift increasingly over to micromobility and allows transit to specialize on the longer trip that micromobility can't touch. That's good. It's not just about writing. But finally, I, I work with transit agencies every day, and I've been working with transit agencies for 25 years and talking to their governing boards, and their governing boards don't tell the staff to do the thing, to do what we would do to maximize ridership. They tell the staff to implement a lot of other values besides that. And so that's why in the end, for me, this is a conversation about values. This is a conversation about what our goals are for our community and how we achieve those goals. And there are things transit does to achieve those goals that we are not measuring when we just measure how many people are riding. Thank you. Very good. Randall, you can, do you want to respond? Or? Sure. Uh, I really feel like Jarrett is singing my song because I wrote a paper a few weeks ago called Transportation Policy in an Age of Black Swans. <laughs> I agree we can't predict the future, and my prediction of a 25% decline in transit ridership is uh, actually uh, going beyond what I would normally do. But what I do think is that uh, we know enough about the future being totally uncertain, as Jarrett says, that we should not engage in any mega projects, whether highways or transit. Instead, we should talk about micro projects. We should talk about innovation. And I think the best way to innovate 
is to let the private sector innovate. Uh, we Right now, we spend over $50 billion a year subsidizing transit, and this year it's going to be about double, uh, and we're not really getting much out of it. The problem is that transit has an ancient business model. As Jarrett knows, in many cities, the buses are still following the routes that the streetcars went 100 years ago. So uh, let's end the subsidies to highways. Let's end the subsidies to transit. Let's let the private or unsubsidized public operators operate in response to market signals and be as innovative as they can. When Britain did that, they got a huge amount of innovation, uh, the best known of which is Megabus, which is a direct result of the privatization and, and ending of or at least huge reduction in subsidies to transportation in Britain. So I'd like to see the same kind of things happen here. Uh, Jared, are you in favor of the marketplace taking over? No, I, not not generally. I think we have <laughs> we have um, we have tried this in a number of places, um, and you know, Toronto, for example, proposed to give over a, a fine piece of waterfront to the private sector to create a dream community, and it ended up not working. It didn't work politically, which is to say that the, that what the private sector was going to do might have been profitable, but was not consistent with the city's values. And that's why it comes back to values. The private sector is good at making money. It is good at optimizing for making money. It is not good at dealing, at delivering on, um, on civic values, which emerge out of civic conversations in the process that we call politics. And um, in big cities in particular, but I think in all communities to some degree, um, people's idea about what they want their community to be is fundamental to how we should develop and the private sector doesn't care about that i mean they will do pr campaigns complaining uh making it appear that they care about that but fundamentally it's not what they do um uh, uh i randall is not going to provoke me into defending very many mega projects i think that the um uh the free market utopia that he describes where all subsidies are stripped away from all modes and all modes bear the true cost of their impact uh, is one that I believe would be an absolute urbanist paradise where transit would excel because uh, cars in particular have so many massive impacts that are not accounted for in the way we think about the cost of highway projects. That's an eternal debate. Um, but um, everything from pollution to uh, climate impacts to uh, road deaths to all of the other uh, to to the way that uh, suburban land use patterns oriented around cars use space and land inefficiently all those things um, and so I do believe that if we had that you know libertarian paradise uh, in the context of fully capturing and assigning the cost of every impact. Uh, I would be happy to live in that world. I don't think anyone knows how to create that world, and most of the people who propose that don't really want to follow that idea everywhere that it goes. Now return to the Sharks. Um, uh, Jerry Luton, uh, you can go first. Uh, I can think of a lot of lot of questions and the things to ask these guys. It's interesting that Randall says they agree and Jared says they don't. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of things. Fascinated by Randall's uh, discussion about about uh, the private sector taking over transit. I I worked for 20 years at New Jersey Transit, a variety of positions, and um, you know there 
yes, there's something to be said for, for market forces. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe I make enough, I could send my kids to private school. Maybe I could even pay for private armed guards rather than having a public police force. Um, but there are many who can't. And yeah, we, transit runs a lot of inefficient services. You know, the, the late, the late night buses, you know, 1130 PM to 1:30 AM that are bringing the cleaning people back and forth from the hospitals and the people in the early morning who are going to, to restaurants to serve, to uh, serve as, as, as waiters and cooks. Um, what do we do about them, Randall? Do we, do we price mass transit as a, uh, uh, a, a normal good and, and uh, allow them to, uh, to pay more for it? Uh, as, a, as a public transit agency, we also had to provide a service to those who couldn't use transit. Uh, and we did, ha- and uh, all over the country, basically, it's the same. Uh, it costs about three and a half dollars to transport a, a transit rider on a bus. It costs about $35 to transport a disabled rider on paratransit. So it's big costs there. But a lot of it is being paid for by, elect- by our decision makers, our elected officials, really. About three quarters of the cost of public transportation is not paid for out of the fare box, but subsidies. Well, I'll stop there and turn it back to um, to our speakers, and uh, particularly Randall. I'm I'm very interested in in what you have to say. Well, transit was for a long time uh, a private uh, service, and it worked very well until it got competition from something that was much better than transit. And I think the best way we can help essential workers and others who are using transit is to help them use the form of transportation that has helped so many other people. If they can't afford a car, let's give them a low interest loan so they can buy a used car and, uh, or even a new inexpensive car. That way they can get to work much more safely than by riding transit, which we know uh, has been one of the big transmitters of the virus in, in New York City, at least. Uh, so instead of saying we have to stick to this old, old model of transportation for the relative handful of people who can't afford a car, and I suspect that most of the people who don't have a car, could, most of the workers who don't have a car could actually afford one if they wanted to, but for the relative handful of people who can't afford one, let's get them a car. Let's make it possible for them to afford a car. And then for people who are disabled, people who are elderly, let's find cheaper ways of getting them around than buying them $35 paratransit rides. Like what, Randall? What's cheaper than $35? Like what? Well, like Uber and Lyft. Uh, There are taxis (laughs) that are are custom designed to help disabled people. Uh, I'm sure we could Uber and Lyft, if there was a market for it, if they weren't competing against an, uh, 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 agencies that were getting subsidized to the tune of $35 a ride, that they would, uh, people would buy vehicles that would help disabled people get around. So, and if, uh, I may, not, if I may interject, we're supposed to talk self-driving cars here. And that word has not even been mentioned. <laughs> uh, and so let me encourage you to factor, obviously it's a future technology only deployed in Scottsdale or Arizona right now. But um, uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to come with that. When I talk, I'll talk about that, but I want to say that even sooner. 
No, no. Well, we don't, you know, so, so you, can, you can talk out of order. It is allowed. No, let's go to Michael. Let's go to Michael. Okay, I'm sorry. Michael, do you have something more rational to ask? Well, it's not, it's not <laughs> rational to ask. I grew up in a household with a sister and a mother. Mother never got her driver's license. My father was a, was a, um, a piston head from, from birth. Um, I followed him. I started driving with him when I was 14 years old because my sister decided that she wasn't, she wasn't going to get her driver's license. So he turned the wheel over to me on the, on the coal roads behind the, uh, behind where we lived. So I've, I grew up with people who had to ride public transit. I had to ride public transit as well. Before I got my driver's license, I was working in a lumber yard. I needed to get to the lumber yard. I mean, most of us who have lived in cities, I grew up in the middle of a, of a relatively large city, 140,000 people at the time. It had a public transit system that worked. It's 80,000 people now. The, the transit system still works. And people like my mother, God bless, rest her soul, she's not alive. But if she were, she'd still be riding on the buses. My sister rides on the buses. But I'm a car guy. But then something happened. I got a consulting assignment with a company that I used to work for and used to live very close to. And for the last three years, I've been taking high-speed train, Sweden's high-speed train, 500 kilometers every two weeks, back and forth. And while I'm there for three or four days, every morning I get up, I ride the bus. When I'm finished, I ride the bus home. I've been using transit in a way that most people who live in a city use public transport. And most of the people that I'm working with, if they live in the city, they either bicycle to work or they take the bus or the tram. Gothenburg is is, uh, the city I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm on both sides of this issue. I mean, I've grown up. The first thing I wanted to do was to get a car, and I've owned a car and driven a car and worked for car companies since I was 16 years old. But I've also seen the benefits of public transit. I rode the buses when they were driven by or, or run by uh, private companies, I saw what happened in the, in the 60s when the, when the private companies decided they couldn't run these anymore. We had no bus transport and uh, bus transit in, in the city for almost two years. It was then taken over by the, by the public agencies, and that's when the whole public transit system began. So I'm a believer, but on the other hand, I'm also, I also see the benefits of the private car. But not everyone can drive. Not everyone can have a license. Not everyone has the possibility of having a car. Not even, it's not even a financial thing. They, they can't drive. We have lots of people who would like to work, who need to be, to be in places where they need to get, but they don't have access to a car. And public transport, buses primarily in most cases, but also trams and, and uh, subways, fulfill a very important need. Unfortunately, they're not, as they are designed today, they're not very efficient. They're too big. They don't get to all of the streets primarily because they're too big. And getting most of the people who need to take public transit have a difficult time actually getting to the bus stops in order for them to take it. So we have an opportunity here. If we really look at the evidence of what's happened during this this period of time, when in Stockholm, for example, bus ridership 
transit ridership in general across the, the entire country is down by almost 70%. Car um, traffic, people driving cars in the Stockholm region is, is down between 15 and 25%. The number of people who have to work, the people who are working in the hospitals, people who are working in the, in the, the grade schools, there are a number of the police, the fire, the fire, the ambulances, those people have to get to work. They're about 50% of the population. The rest of the people, and it's not 50% who are working from home, a lot of the companies like Volvo, Scania, they, they're all, they're la- they've laid off all their workers. So it's about 30% of the people who are able to work at home like all of the people that I'm working with, and the rest of them are laid off. So we have an opportunity here to see exactly what's happened. Unfortunately, we're making projections. We're making a lot of, of, of guesses. We need to do some really hard studies to, to identify what it is that actually is happening and how that can be, how we can use that information to design a better trans, transit system. Go ahead, Jared. Uh, um, yeah, um, thank you, Michael. I need to. Um, I need. I want to go back to though to something that Randall said earlier, um, talking about low interest loans for cars, but the idea that you know most workers probably could afford a car. I feel like I need to speak up for the people who work in social services, the people who are engaged with low income and marginal populations, who would have just completely blown a top when they had heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, we may very well be heading into the second Great Depression. We're certainly heading into a, an economic crisis that is going to have a disproportionately devastating impact on lower income people who are less able to adapt to um, the situation and are most likely to lose their jobs. Under those circumstances, I think, uh, although I'm reluctant to make predictions, the notion that there is any feasible way to get a car into the hands of most low income people is, I think, crazy. Also agreeing with Michael, um, there are some, there are numerous excellent reasons not to drive a car. One of them being a self-awareness that you're not a particularly safe driver, or if you don't have that self-awareness, the state choosing to impose that awareness on you through multiple traffic tickets or whatever. Not everybody is a safe driver. Safe driving is actually incredibly difficult. Um, and most people aren't very good at it. That's, of course, I don't need to tell Brad that. That's why we have part one of the major arguments for driverless cars. Um, so, and, and I think finally, of course, if you want to associate danger with public transport, which is the case right now during this period when we're dealing with the virus, um, uh, you can do that. I'm really focused on what happens after the virus, after we have the vaccine, um, what happens to our cities then, And at that point, it will still be the case, at least until the driverless car revolution, that cars are incredibly dangerous to to their passengers and to people around them because they are driven by mostly semi-competent amateurs um, who are dealing with all of their own emotions as they drive them. And many of us are understandably want to opt out from that and don't appreciate being told that that's what everyone should have to deal with. Well, I... I have, a, I have a difficult time with the argument saying that the people who invented cars aren't smart enough to drive them. <clears throat> the, um, um, you know, there's just enormous amounts of dangerous driving all around us. Of and, course there is, but it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that everybody's a bad driver. Are you a bad uh, driver, Jared? Actually, yes. I'm not a very good driver. Okay. Um, and, and I, I, but the difference is I'm aware of that. 
I am aware that human beings are evolved to be very easily distracted. It makes very good sense in the context of, of the situation that we evolved in that we're extremely prone to distraction. Totally, I totally agree. I totally disagree from just from a, a pure evolutionary point of view. If we were distracted, we wouldn't be here right now. We're not easily distracted. We can concentrate. That's what we. That's what we're. That's what our DNA tells us to do, not to be distracted. Because if if we were, we wouldn't be here. We'd we'd all be dead. We'd be well, with Neanderthals. I mean, there are different kinds of there are different kinds of distraction, different kinds of alertness uh, that we that we may be talking about. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, we all know there are lots of traffic accidents. There are lots of traffic fatalities. This is one of the major arguments for driverless cars. And um, uh, not everyone is good at driving. Not no, it isn't. No, it isn't. The major. Well, it used to be. Yeah. It, is, it is a argument. Yeah. However, let's, yeah, talk, actually, let's, let's, let's car, talk about Cars were dangerous 50 years ago, and we had 55,000 people killed each year. Uh, now we drive three times as many miles a year and auto fatality rates are a lot lower because cars have gotten safer. I agree. It's a problem. We need to make cars safer. We need to make them. Uh, and I think we are, you know, all of the uh, auto uh, driver assistance programs make cars safer. Uh, but really, uh, the argument that there is a significant number of people who are too poor to drive. I would argue that the reason why they're too poor to drive is because they don't have cars. The data clearly show that cars give people access to far more jobs and economic opportunities than transit does, even in New York. Uh, and so uh, making cars accessible to people who have low incomes is the best way of getting them out of poverty. And around the country, there are programs that do this, that provide low interest loans to people uh, to buy their first car so they can get out of poverty. Nationwide, only 4% of American workers live in households without cars, and 20% of them drive alone to work. Yeah, can when we they get their car, nobody knows. Only 40% of them take transit. So we're talking about very small numbers of people here. It would be very easy to get those people behind the wheel of a car uh, and society would be better off. They would be better off. Let me turn it back to Brad. I yeah. cut him off before when he was. Well, no, no, no. I was, I was interjecting what I think should be the primary focus of our discussion, which is the impact of self-driving technology on these questions. Now, Randall has many arguments about transit already running on ancient assumptions. But what's clear is that many of the things planned for self-driving cars do upend many of the assumptions that have gone behind what you argued for uh, Jarrett, or what many other people have argued for about the advantages of transit. Let's look at some of them. Of course, when you're eliminating the drivers, one of the actually surprisingly significant costs of operating public transit systems, it changes the equations on what the optimum vehicle size is. Today, we use buses of 40 to 60 people. We use trains with several hundred people because the need for drivers changed the optimum size and made it be very big. But it turns out they're all much too big to be efficient. Uh, and many people blanch at that idea because normally we think bigger is more efficient, but moving empty seats is not efficient. Uh, moving full seats is the only thing that's efficient. My calculations suggest that that right efficiency number at rush hour is more in the range of 10 to 15 people per vehicle, not 40 to 300 people per vehicle. And that outside of rush hour, that best uh, optimum number may be a vehicle with one to two seats. And that's very different from the assumptions of public transit. Now, the particular thing about a one to two seat vehicle is 
that this is actually a very inexpensive vehicle to make. Uh, if you look at Google's Firefly, the, their third prototype, which had no dashboard, no pedals, no steering wheel, what many people don't realize is when you take all those things out of a car, you make the car vastly cheaper than cars today. You have expensive sensors today spinning on the roof, but those sensors are all going to price less than $1,000 very soon. There's a lot of people working to make that happen. So the actual vehicle costs significantly less than a current car. Operating a current car today costs about 40 to 50 cents per mile, the total cost of ownership, not counting parking, plus the subsidies of the roads. Everyone always wants to mention there's the subsidies of the roads. But the cost of the owner is about that price. And that's the all-in price of all the oil companies and insurance companies and maintenance companies and buying the car and depreciating it. So anyway, we could go on to that for a long time, but the prediction is we're talking about transportation that's significantly cheaper, not just than today's car transportation, but then the bus transportation. The unsubsidized cost of a bus ride is not 30 cents a mile anywhere. Um, it's significantly less. So we talk about something that's cheaper. We talk about something that's more energy efficient. My electric car uses less energy per person mile than any transit system in the United States. It's about on par with the New York MTA and better than all the other systems. So if you like grouping people in large vehicles, it's because you hate the earth. You want to destroy, you want more emissions, you want more pollution. That's what you're going for if you think we should use these giant vehicles. That's what changes. The convenience and quality is so much better. Would Ask anybody, would you rather have one bus every hour on your street, or would you rather have a van every 10 minutes? Of course they want the van every 10 minutes. Many more people would ride that service. It would fill more seats. And even though vans are less efficient than buses one-on-one, -on -one, the overall system would be significantly less efficient. So almost all the goals that we have public transit for, low cost, getting access to people to get anywhere to anywhere, quality rides, all the things that we want are actually met better by robotic vehicles of smaller size. The only one that's not met better is the goal that Jared talked about, about what do our cities feel like? How crowded are our roads? How, um, you know, how much uh, do full streets that are difficult to cross in the day are that less pleasant than streets that you could walk across? And I agree that's a, an issue, but I think that remain, that's our remaining issue because I think the other problems have been solved. And so we can actually uh, design, if we get rid of the 20th century assumptions, that we've been doing all this on, we can actually design ways to meet all the real goals we have, the social goals, as well as the economic goals, the personal comfort goals, the safety goals. We can meet all those goals vastly better with this technology. And I don't see public transit uh, planners and designers even debating this question with me. They may want to say, well, you say it's the average, the right size is 10. I'd love to debate whether the right size is 10, but the assumption that it's 60 is crazy. Hey, I want to jump in here. Can yeah. I jump in here? I've yeah. been, my goodness, it's been a half hour and I haven't said anything. Oh, my goodness. People must be saying what the hell is going on. Well, I mean, I want to go far. I, I want to go farther than Brad. The optimum size vehicle is probably six passengers. And if you look at the 1.2 billion trips that used to take place on a typical day before COVID-19, what six passenger vehicles just did fine and dandy everywhere except Manhattan. And how many more Manhattans does anybody want? Probably after COVID-19, none. They might not even want Manhattans. And all this stuff about cities and so on, uh, that's, not where the, that's not where the people travel. That's not where they go. They don't go downtown. They go around town. They go around Minneapolis. They go around Portland. They go a, a whole host of other places. And even if they go downtown, six-passenger vehicles are fine. And if, in fact, we do get driverless vehicles where, in fact, it can be real transit, what is transit? It's mobility provided by a service provider. That's what it is. 
It's mobility provided by a service provider. Now, some people think it's somebody that gets subsidized a gazillion dollars by somebody and so on and runs big buses and big trains. No, it's mobility provided as a service as opposed to us providing our mobility for ourselves. There are really only two types. There's the stuff we provide for ourselves when we go out and buy a car and we do it ourselves, or there's a mobility that's provided by somebody else that makes that service available. And the real opportunity, people have said, driverless is supposedly for safety. Absolutely not safe. Driving cars are for safety, as Randall actually pointed out. You put the technology in there around the person, and you don't allow them to get him or herself between a rock in a hard place and that does the safety piece the whole driverless the whole reason to do it is to be able to provide mobility efficiently in competition with the kind of mobility that we provide for ourselves that means it's on demand available 24 7 from where you are where the customer is to where the customer wants to go as opposed to down some antiquated bus line that serves a couple places that in fact is empty and doesn't run when it wants to run and doesn't even get the people to the jobs and so blah 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 ask randall about light capacity rail uh, and the efficiency oh no no oh, no we'll, we'll do another one on light capacity rail this one was supposed to be with roadways and dealing yeah. vehicles and and the whole issue i look at this the opportunity of covid19 is it's an opportunity for the people who have been concerned about providing mobility to everyone to take a deep breath and see how in the heck do we really do this better in competition with the the ability to provide mobility for yourself so that, in fact, we can serve those who don't want to provide it for themselves. That's the opportunity, and I'll say that the way we've been doing it isn't very good, and that's why nobody uses it. Jared, let me ask Jared, uh, can we just stop the session now? We've got um, Alan's, Alan's provided a clear answer to urban transportation. Um. <laughs> I would say that when we have perfected driverless cars to the point that we actually all want to trust them, um, then we can have that conversation. Um, I was astonished that Brad said that we transit planners are not talking about driverless cars. We are being absolutely bombarded by pitches about driverless cars. I'm being asked about driverless cars in every presentation I do. Uh, that's been the case for um, a good decade now, You know, all the way back to the to say, oh, 2013, when every meeting I went to, somebody came up and said, you know, all this is, is, is pointless because we're going to have, we're going to have driverless cars by 2015. And then in 2015, it was 2017 and so on. Well, I do want to. Can I actually say some things, Brad? This was supposed yeah. to be a debate between me and Randall. Yeah. Um, um, the, the, the problem that we have is, first of all, a values problem, which is telling our city governments that their job is to plan around an imminent technology rather than to implement their values. And that's something that I think, I think that this is, this is related also to the way big city governments have fortunately responded to Uber and Lyft, that uh, city government has purposes other than getting out of the way of whatever technology is supposedly imminent. I'm not against driverless cars. I think it's, I, I, I certainly see the potential for public transit. 
I don't think I don't think it's interesting to debate, you know, exactly how big vehicles will be when we no longer have drivers, but we'll still have we will still have the constraints of space on cities. But um, but fundamentally, um, I'll believe in driverless cars when you actually have level five and when it's actually out there. And until then, he's going to say level right. five. Level five is just the worst concept ever, ever yeah, mentioned. Don't, don't, don't okay, that. please don't. Word. Please Let's don't. Not use that word then, but you know what I mean. What I mean is drivers with is cars with no steering wheels that we all trust, running in all kinds of conditions, not just nice weather. Mm-hmm. And of, how about and, most conditions? We can't drive our own cars. You can't run your buses in all conditions. But anyway, the, when the, it the, snows the, too much, you stop your buses in the New Jersey. The point I was writing on you, Jared, is not to say that the vehicles are here and they're there. But what I'm saying, the topic of this debate is the future uh, and whether public transit has a great future or a poor future in the context of the eventual arrival of self-driving. That's why we're here for this debate. There are other conferences where the general topic can be discussed. And I felt that I hadn't even heard the phrase until I brought it up, and I felt that I want to steer us in that direction. Well, the key word is eventual, and we don't know. And I understand that those of you who work in self-driving cars want it to be imminent and we're, and that we'll continue to be told that it's coming soon. But I don't know that it's coming soon. Another concern I have about driverless cars is the way that what I guess I'm not supposed to call level four, the, um, the idea that we can make driverless cars easier if we simplify their problems by redesigning streets around them. No. Um, that's something that, you know, is is absolutely um, radioactive idea. Nobody said that. Yeah, that nobody said, nobody has said that. Nobody has asked the public sector for anything except for maybe paint, so we're that we can all drive well. That's all anybody has ever asked for. The serious, okay? the, the serious people, in fact, no, I think the first off. law: you don't change the infrastructure. You got to drive in the world you're given. You can't change the world for you. Yeah, Randall, do you have a couple of comments on this? In a minute, minute, we have to go to questions from you. Well, I've been talking about, I've been talking about how driverless cars are going to replace mass transit since 2010. Not as soon as Brad, and maybe not as soon as Alan, but a lot sooner than most people. I had an article in the Wall Street Journal about that subject in March 2010, and uh, I see it as inevitable. But what I see today is I'm not even sure public transit is going to survive until we get driverless cars because the pandemic is going to drive away their passengers. The people who are working at home are going to drive away passengers from mass transit. And we're going to end up, to keep mass transit, we're going to end up paying subsidies that are so enormous for buses that are running around empty uh, that people are just going to say, let's stop doing it. And that's what I'm saying now. Let's stop doing it now. Let's let private operators, we've had private companies like Chariot and Bridge attempt to compete against public transit and couldn't do it because they're competing against such heavily subsidized public operators. But if we end the subsidies, we'll see private operators where transit is necessary, where transit will be used by people. What we won't see is transit buses coming to places like Camp Sherman, Oregon, uh, but with the current model, I have a bus that comes four miles from my house. Uh, why? Nobody takes it. It's empty. Uh, but the agency that wants to do it wants to get a bigger tax subsidy so they can run buses to my house. Why? Uh, once we start subsidizing it, there's no stopping it. 
There's no line drawn in the sand that says, this is what we're going to not subsidize. We're only going to subsidize here. We need to end that mentality and get back to serving the people who want it. And I think a private non-subsidized transit system will provide that service where we want it until maybe we won't want it anymore after driverless cars. Who knows? Maybe we'll still want it. But uh, we're certainly not going to want to be spending 75 or $100 billion a year subsidizing almost nobody riding public transit. And I think that's going to happen because of the pandemic before we get to the level five driverless cars. Uh, it, it's hard to get a word in edgewise with this group. Uh, and I have a lot of questions I'd like to ask, but let's try to turn to the, uh, our audience. Um, I saw Kara Kalkman had a number of comments. Can... Uh, the powers that be uh, unmute her and let Kara ask her questions or comments. I don't know whether Jeremiah or Fred can do that. As soon as you, as soon as you do that, let, let me know because I because Kara had a. I, I see them streaming by here on the, on the right hand side. I can't. As I say, uh, AI is easy and AV turns out to be hard. But um... <laughs> uh, do you have a question, uh, Dick? And why don't you just ask it for? Her? I, I, she had a whole bunch of comments about uh, uh, the ability of, of, of transit. Uh, she talks about uh, I, I, one. Con- there she is. Okay, Kara, can you? Uh, oh yeah. I, 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 I would never pre- presume Hi, to speak for you. <laughs> Hi, I don't have any questions. Um, oh. I do think you know you might want to talk a bit more about uh, contracting out uh, to private providers with all the revenues that agencies naturally have. And of course, it isn't a debate between, you know, transit or no transit. I I do think uh, having more efficient ways of getting people into dense settings is really important. And of course, meeting the needs of people to get to education and healthcare and all this very basic. So uh, how that happens, it depends on the setting. It really, really does depend. And I think credit-based congestion pricing is a wonderful way to deal with the congestion issues that frees up some road space for more efficient vehicles, vehicle sizing and, and ride sharing. I think it's going to happen. I think Corona is going to be with us for a long time and we're just going to have to get used to it and mask up. And, and, and I think we're going to be probably fine, but maybe in smaller vehicles rather than, you know, big subway stations underground. That's going to be tricky if, if we do feel that's a vector of transmission. Uh, but I, I do think you know, we will have to get back to work and we will have to take this risk. I feel it's a lot like just being asked to get out of our cars and ride motorcycles all the time. And the young people fall off the motorcycles less often and the elderly people, when they fall off, they're more likely to die. It's kind of like that level of risk. And we're going to we're going to live with it. We're going to get through it. Um, it's going to be around. Vaccines are going to be imperfect if they do exist. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, uh, contracting out services, moving to smaller vehicles, more on-demand stuff. Uh, hopefully the user base can handle smartphones. I know my mom can't, but hopefully uh, most uh, transit users these days are comfortable with smartphone applications and, and we can do a better job of this, especially when we engage um, some of the, the comp- competition on the supply side rather than having the agency manage everything. We, okay. I think that your point, uh, Carl, about uh, farming out to private companies. We, I don't. We, we've we've been very U.S. centric in this discussion so far. But many country, many cities, many countries and cities. Stockholm is a very good example. Um, Sweden does contract out its its uh, bus services, even the operation of its trains and trams to private companies. 
mean, there's a Chinese company that's running the buses and the and the uh, the subway in Stockholm. Um, that doesn't necessarily eliminate the the necessity of subsidies because 50% of the of the revenues that come in are only 50% of the entire cost of running of operating these services. So the subsidies are still going to be be there. It's the same in in the UK with with uh, running the rail lines. Um, you know they're they're trying their best to to be profitable, but uh, they're not necessarily succeeding. Yeah, the Japanese do. They're the only ones who pay their operating uh, costs from Fairbox, although that doesn't include the in, uh, capital costs of building the lines. Right. I, I don't think private companies are going to make us. Uh, profitable at all i just think uh, they'll they'll get away with they'll get away from some of the inefficiencies they'll spread the risk uh, but it's still something we are going to want to subsidize i just want to say one thing about this which is that it's easy to compare private companies to public sector companies um, but where privatization works it is in the context of of um of two things. First of all, a continued powerful government role in planning. And I'm sure when Michael talks about Sweden, and generally when you talk about uh, about functional places in public transport, you're talking about privatization of operations, but not privatization of planning. Where, where planning has been privatized, as in the UK, uh, or in Australia and New Zealand, where I spent you know five years of my life cleaning up the mess caused by that, it actually produces tremendous inefficiency, and we can talk more about that. But the small vehicle thing, um, we can have our own crystal balls about COVID, but I don't understand how small vehicles are going to be better for, for social distancing unless you really just mean driving your own car where you clean the whole thing yourself. Uber and Lyft are going to have a, a horrible time recovering from this just as well. Anytime you get into somebody else's vehicle, you're going to have all these same issues. And transit is right now are running the largest vehicles they can, much larger than they need, precisely because social distancing right now is the mandate, not right. So small vehicles can have individual compartments, which is more difficult to do in vehicles that have to have standing room and all that thing. The second thing you can do with small to medium sized vehicles is it's expensive, but they can go for cleaning literally between every ride, which is not something that's practical for buses or trains. I think the sneezing and the coughing is a big issue. And if you're masked and you also use your shirt to shield people, as well as, you know, barriers that can come up and down, depending on who you're traveling with, you may have a family of four who doesn't want to be separated in those vehicles. Um, but I, I do think we're going to live with this risk, just like a lot of people purposefully ride motorcycles. Um, that's kind of the level of risk we're being asked to live with as we move forward. And I, I think we're going to get used to that. I think humans are going to adapt to that. Otherwise, we're really stuck. Uh, it seems to me we're going to be, if you really have to do uh, um, uh, physical distancing in all these vehicles, you're going to need to, to double or triple the capacity of the uh, transit system to handle it. And even with all the extra money that's going on out there, I have a hard time seeing the capital that transit needs. I don't think any of us has a crystal ball about COVID that's good enough to actually know what the recovery path is going to be. You know, if we have a vaccine within the next year, then that intersects with the recovery path and, and yeah. you know, such that we can start living at higher density again, which many people want to do. Um, I, I don't I don't know how you predict that. I would be very surprised if we are still dealing with COVID in the same timeline that we also have ubiquitous driverless cars. I think those are different timelines. Probably. Let me ask uh, Fred or Jeremiah if you can get hold of Neil Peterson. 
because um, he said he, uh, I believe he's listening, and he said he was going to try to get a question in. Here's one, of, one of the difficult things with respect to the driverless is that some people who talk about driverless all, all of a sudden think ubiquity or something. We don't have ubiquity of cars. <laughs> cars don't drive everywhere today. They don't go down streams, even though, you know, Jeep might advertise that they do. They don't. So, I mean, uh, come on. And the problem with the way transit companies have approached the driverless, I don't think there is one demonstration that a transit company has done anywhere in the U.S. that is really leading to actually a driverless operation. Most of them are scared to death about driverless because of their unions, because if they talk about driverless in the transit uh, company, then the union's going to go on strike on them. That's the real problem. And, in fact, that's probably why we need a whole different uh, 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 structure over top of these service providers. It may be private. It may be public. It has nothing. But the transit agencies of the past, I mean, they're they're truly bankrupt. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, let me ask Jerry, uh, you've been, you're, the, you're the quietest shark we've ever had. I'm sure I, I, you have some comments to make on uh, a lot of perceptions, I, I think, a lot of misperceptions about about transit. Um, there's some markets where um, they're absolutely necessary. You try to get into New York across the Hudson River. Uh, there's no way that you can get all the cars across from all of those drivers. Two-thirds of the people take transit because it's probably the more, most efficient way to cross a geographical barrier. And a lot of our central business districts are uh, delimited by, by geographical barriers. I also wanted to mention something to Randall about, about the cost of, of, you know, you, you talked about the cost of buying a car. Hell, if you're a, a food service worker in downtown New York, yeah, you could get a cheap car and drive in, but your, your parking spot is probably going to cost you more than your mortgage. So there's a lot of other, other, other factors there. Um, the other thing is about, about the unfortunate way that, that, that we have to operate. Um, you talk about the bus being half empty or the bus being half full or just that the bus is too big. And that's, and that's one of the problems. You can't buy a tailored fleet. So you size it for the peak demand because that's when you're likely to piss off the most customers. So you have to do that. And unless you're out there uh, in, a, in a transit system riding it in the peak, the peak of the peak, you don't necessarily understand what that looks like. And the rest of the day, yeah, we're, we're, we're hauling around four people or no people. And that's unfortunate. And I will agree with, with the fact that there are, there are some routes in the suburbs that transit should get out of. And we would be better off actually subsidizing at this point, subsidizing Uber and Lyft rides for people if they need to use, if they need to get to destinations on their, on those routes. Um, the other thing is I think that, that, yeah, when we do finally get to automation and automated cars, it's, it's going to eat, eat the transit's lunch. I don't, think, I, and I don't think there's any way around that. You, get the, you start to get the operating costs down uh, of, of a Uber or Lyft, um, and it's going to equal what it costs to, to transport somebody on transit. I think transit can take advantage of, of automation. I think there are some markets where – if you can if you can sustain uh, reasonable service every five ten minutes along a route, then that's where you should concentrate your transit resources. And it really means that transit has to be coordinated with the land use. 
um, it's not going to work if um, you have to, uh, if you're going to serve uh, lower densities. It just doesn't work. Anyway, I will stop there, Dick. But Gerald, yeah, that's, that's a 20th century thinking again. If you've ever been, if you've been in a modern office building in the last few years, you'll notice that the elevators don't have buttons in them anymore. Their button is outside. You say what floor you want to go to, and you're taken to the floor you want nonstop with other people going to that floor. And that turns out to vastly increase the efficiency of the elevator system to allow buildings to get taller because you can send more people through them. Instead of stopping every three minutes, which is, uh, or having, you know, things every three minutes and stopping for everybody all the time, point-to-point -point service where people are grouped together based on the natural synergies of their trips, the way that Uber Pool wants to do, is on the way to trying to do. Um, that's a much better future than the future you described. It's just, you know, Jarrett, you told me that, yes, every transit planner has been, been yelled at about self-driving cars for the last 10 years, and I know they have been one of the people yelling at them. What bothers me is, uh, you get it, but I think a lot of people do not get it. They think they say, oh, where are you going to park the cars? Well, these cars don't have to park, right? There's a lot of other things that the assumptions that are put in the way people talk that they're just not really seeing where we can go. No, Brad, that's not the problem. The problem is that um, we are being told to plan the future around a technology that is not here yet. Yeah. And I understand, uh, I've, I've studied the history of invention and inventors and boosters always need to create a sense of inevitability about technology. And because I know that you need to do that, I know to discount that in, in proportion to how much you need to do that. I don't think we know when we're going to have driverless cars that are that are at a point that we can trust it to do everything we need to do, everything that a bus can do in terms of all the weathers that a bus can operate in, all of the situations that encounter. And a bus is, relatively speaking, a simple problem compared to when you start talking about demand responsive, a service that goes into that could potentially go into every alley. Um, one of the things I think we know, don't we, Brent, is that you know, getting from zero to 99% um, reliability is about the same amount of effort as getting from 99 to 90.9.9. .9. No, it's much, much we less. We approach, it's much harder to get from 99 to 100. But, but you know, we, as, uh, I mean, we're seeing it clearly, you know, there were great demos of driverless cars many years ago. The problem is just all of the cases that they have to deal with in order to be as reliable uh, in order to be functional in all the situations that we need a, a vehicle to be functional. That's I why I, I don't object to driverless cars. I object to being told to plan the future around driverless cars because I don't think we know that. I don't I'll think- I'll tell you why, but, why we but say- Jared, that. I think, Jared, I think you're already planning transit for driverless cars. My advocacy when I say driverless cars are coming is to say, let's plan our bus systems, which are low cost and are easily to cancel if driverless cars show up. Let's not plan expensive rail systems that are gonna take 30 years to pay off and maybe nobody's gonna ride them for 20 years because we're gonna have driverless cars after 2030. You're doing the right kind of work. Uh, that I don't have any problem with that. You're saying uh, what I said. However, I do have a problem when somebody says uh, we should spend billions of dollars subsidizing transit because that's the way we've always done it. Uh, if you, Cara if you, talked yeah, about okay. contracting. I think that's yeah, a great we, we need idea. To take the problem with contracting it, is that there's enormous incentives in the transit industry against contracting. If we you, need I, to but fix a joke those incentives so that we can make transit efficient. If you Let me break in. Yeah, we're, 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 at, we're, at, we're at one hour. Some people maybe have to leave then. Uh, we, we will come back. Fred, do you want to have a 
couple of closing comments and then we'll come back and continue the debate. Yeah, certainly a lot more to go. And uh, we'll be here for probably another half an hour or so for people who can hang in. But this has been the future of public road transit, the best of times or the toughest of times. We hope you've enjoyed it. A lively discussion. We'll be back with more in about four weeks and welcome your thoughts about topics and participants. You can find us at zoom-tank.com and at smartdrivingcar.com. Don't forget the Automated Vehicles Symposium is still slated for the end of July in San Diego. The info is at automatedvehiclessymposium.org. Thank you for taking part, and we hope you stay healthy and safe. And again, for those of you who would like, you're welcome to stay online to continue the discussion. Dick? All right, I guess we're back again. Um, I don't think we solved anything in the debate. Jared was almost doing one of my jokes, because uh, I, I always tell people when they show me a plan for 2030 or any later date, I say, well, I don't need to read your plan, but I'm going to tell you something about it. It's wrong, all right? Mm-hmm. Because nobody can plan for 2030 with the knowledge of 2020, including planning about self-driving cars or planning about trains or planning about bus systems. And so this is a lesson we've learned in the software industry, the world I come from, where you know everything gets twice as good every two years. It's like a a world that no one's ever seen. And the solution we found was to make our infrastructure as simple as possible and delay our decisions as much as possible by putting more of our decisions into virtual things and software. That's the only solution that we found to work in the tech industry, which is why instead of smart cities, you have stupid cities and smart vehicles. The internet is actually based on the design from the early 1980s. That same design is running Zoom for us today because none of the intelligence to do this was put in the internet. It was all put into the endpoints, the phones, the web servers, the laptops. This is the philosophy the whole world has to adopt as computers take over. And so I say the same thing. Now, I tell you, as Randall will probably agree, that rails have this wonderful thing. They can carry trains or trains or trains or trains. But bare concrete can carry pedestrians, scooters, cars, trucks, buses, things that haven't been invented yet. So you make your plans as simple as possible. You make as much of your infrastructure as virtual as possible and then make decisions later at the time that you can make them if you do it in the virtual and software space where it isn't a 10-year to 20-year process to try and change things. So there is advice you can give to transportation planners, even in an uncertain world. Oh, I, th- I don't think any of that is controversial, Brad. And, and in case you haven't noticed, I'm not the person to defend most mega projects. Yeah. In fact, I would, I would call out and encourage everyone to read the work of Charles Marone, M-A-R-O-H-N. He has a new book out, Strong Towns. Um, and he is, um, and I think this is relevant to the conversation with Randall too. He really is laying out the argument about why a great deal of the infrastructure that we have already built is unsustainable because we can't possibly afford to maintain it all. Um, and you know, and and he says at one point in his book, just stop building infrastructure. I don't agree with him about that. I think there are a few th- pieces of infrastructure that are really needed mostly in very, very dense cities where we have um, significant bottlenecks. Um, but, um, you know, I think that, I think that in general, um, the issue we, the, the, the disagreement that we have, Brad, is not about, um, it, it's not really about, you know, what driverless cars are like eventually or how things work eventually. The issue we have is about how the imminence of driverless cars has affected um, city has has been a pressure on city planning that I've found to be very unhelpful and counterproductive because it has tended to mean that we don't solve the problems we have now with the technologies we have now. I, I appreciate that. 
Yeah, I say, when I look at the planning that I've seen done at state and local governments, I haven't seen any locality that has changed a major investment because of autonomous vehicles. You won't stop building light rail, no one stop building roads. I can tell you about one. So in Silicon Valley, you know, the city of Sunnyvale, California, right in the middle of Silicon Valley, when we were trying, when, when the transit agency was trying to get a fair allocation of road space on a big boulevard so that the buses that carry more people per lane than, than the other lanes could have a lane to themselves, the argument against them was full of self-driving cars. This is all going to be obsolete in a certain number of years. And so a decision was made today, which affects people's ability to get to work today based on a hypothetical technology that isn't available yet. It happens all the time. Oh, well, wait a minute. One occurrence does not mean that it happens all the time. That is just what happens all the time is that these plans are these plans are just are recycled. I mean, look, the, the, the transportation planning process is supposed to take 30 years into the future. And what have all these metropolitan transportation organizations done? They've just taken their plans and re republish them, republish them, republish them. And if you actually look at them, there is no innovation anywhere in any of them, I will make the claim, having to do with looking at the opportunities for driverless, which they're supposedly looking 30 and 40 years down the road. So come on. Let me ask uh, Michael and some others a question. One of the things that's come out of Europe and is probably talked about almost as much as autonomous vehicles is the phrase mobility as a service. M-A-A-S. There are lots of people who believe that is the near-term answer uh, that came out of Finland. Um, do you have any comments on that? Or are there people Dick, have you, you and I were at a conference together, what, four years yes. ago? In, uh, well, yeah, in Finland, yeah. In Finland, outside of Helsinki, where this, the, the concept of mobility as a service this the new guru and father of mobility as a service and i and we said i think we agreed then that what what this person was talking about and what mobility as a service is is what we've been doing with with public transportation for the last 100 years um mobility as a service is what public transit systems do and mobility as a service is what taxi taxi companies do it's providing a service to someone who can't who can't move themselves. I mean, extending this to saying, well, if, if I live in Stockholm, I can go down to Gothenburg and use the same card. I can't do that today. That's mobility as a service. That That's really not anything outstanding. It's nothing that's, that's really concrete. It's not moving the ball forward. So I, I think the, the, the discussions that we've been having about how to improve public transportation is much more effective than, than putting a name like mobility as a service and saying, well, we'll solve all this by simply getting people to use mobile apps and, and to pay for, for however they want to move, whenever they want to move. I mean, I think that's how is, is less important in this case and what. what. So that's, that's my opinion on mobility as a service. This. I, 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 I don't know what the term means. I have yep. been listening to the term for years, and it means all kinds of different things, which means it doesn't mean anything. Exactly. <laughs> I, th- I think it has a meaning. It, it's, the, it's commonly used to refer to robo-taxi service, at least in the software. No, it isn't. It's, it started out as something no. completely <laughs> different. Robo-taxis have absolutely nothing to do with, with See, this is it's, the it's one of many, many possibilities yeah. for the, 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 actual, the actual system or service or, or vehicle that you're using, but it, it doesn't refer to robo No, I know, I know the people expanded it, but when the car companies start saying, you know, we're not General Motors, we're General Mobility, that's what they were saying. 
Steve Yaffe uh, has just posted a good definition on, on, on in the chat. Mass is a combination of right providers with common data format, common information, booking information, shared account. It's fun, you know, that, the closest yeah. thing I understand is that it's an information system. It has nothing yeah. to do with what the vehicles are doing. But yeah. if the bus doesn't, you know, what I'm, what I'm concerned about waiting for the bus is that the bus comes on time and that it gets me to where I want to go on time. And if I, if how I pay for it is really not that important. I mean, in the end, if you if you move from Stockholm to Gothenburg or New York to Boston, and you have to figure out a way of paying for it, that's really not so important. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let me let me ask a political question then to make things look. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of talk in the U.S. about a big new infrastructure bill sometime later this summer. What should that bill have that would make? Uh, transit, bus transit uh, function better? Is it just more money? Is there other things that should be changed to it? Cancel all buses. Uh, One thing that I, and I've I've said this, but this is getting into a completely different discussion. Make sure that if if you're using money that you've transferred from the car companies because they haven't followed the rules for emissions, that they're not buying buses from China. (laughs) Yeah. Let's, let's Actually, China is the world leader in electric buses. There's like we know that. Yeah. And how we do you think that. they got there? We um, um, question if the question is about the infrastructure bill. I know many people who would say uh, stop building federally funded roads. Um, I know, and I'm and we have people here who say stop building federally funded transit. I think the area of broad agreement is fix it first. That there is such a terrible, terrible uh, deficit in maintenance in both transit and uh, and roads that that's probably going to be the area of biggest agreement. And also, don't fill it with pork, and I'm not going to get my wish. Well, I, I, don't, I, I don't think people are thinking about how, how do you change the overall program on this stuff. Um, I, I, Jared, a lot of stuff you talk about is the need in high-density cities, that mm-hmm. transit is key to that. Are you at all worried that with uh, COVID-19 change, we're going to be, people are going to be shifting to lower-density areas? Does that hurt the argument for, for transit? Well, I think it, I, I think the problem, the problem with that is that is not its problem for transit. The problem is its general lack of sustainability, that, um, low density development is brittle because it is so dependent on a single transportation option. Cities are intrinsically resilient by comparison because so many different transportation options are potentially viable. And that's part of part of the reason to bet on cities. I, I, I work all the time in transit in suburban areas and I see these places that have been built in such a way that everyone must use cars and, and there are no other options. There are no choices. So I think the fact that in cities there are choices will continue to be an attraction to them. But also, I think cities are going to be continue to be the place where public transit is absolutely existential. And if you look at how big city governments think about transit, you'll see that. They understand what's, exist- what's an existential threat, and um, they see transit as existentially essential. So um, uh, I, I, think in, I think in short, I mean, yes, maybe there will be some movement out of cities. I don't think it will go very far. Um, but um, and if it does, if we do see a vast new pressure for vast amounts of urban sprawl, that's going to have a whole other sort of imp- set of impacts that will make its impact on transit look fairly minor. I mean, Randall showed lots of data, uh, has shown data before and talked about 
transit losing market share. Mm-hmm. How is that? Isn't that that sort of implies that uh, in big cities transit is not doing as well as uh, uh, we might have right. hoped? Ridership goes up and down all the time. Right now, it's down for a really obvious reason. Transit agencies are actually anti-marketing themselves. You go on a transit agency website, and they're telling you not to ride the bus if you can avoid it. Obviously, ridership has always gone up and down for all kinds of external reasons. Gas prices and the cost of driving is a big one. That's been historically low recently. Um, but But it goes down and it goes up. And the point is resilience. The point is the presence of opportunities for people. And that's why um, tra- you know transit transit can't be evaluated solely on ridership grounds because that's not what it's trying to do much of the time. It's trying to be there as an option for uh, for uh, it's trying to be there as an option. It's trying to make sure that there are all, are viable alternatives. I want to go back to one other thing. That was is it a viable alternative? <laughs> I mean, it is compared to the mobility that we each have because we have cars. It is such a poor mobility option for those folks. And, and really, it, and it does it so inefficiently. I mean, you know, why doesn't it take that and say, my goodness, why don't we take a look and see if there are opportunities here to do substantially better? Look, as a, as, an, as a consulting expert, and I am a practitioner, which is a lot different from being a scholar um, in terms of the sort of nature of the experience, but um, I have an obligation to not just project my own tastes and my own, and my own preferences onto the conversation. I have um, um, there this are, is not taste and preference. This is fundamentals. This is fundamentals on frequencies. This is fundamentals on speed. This is fundamentals on affordability. This is this isn't like close preferences. Sure, it is. Come on, I know, no, it I isn't. Have, I have different preferences, and I also live in a different place where lots of people have different preferences to the one you're describing. So finally, just mark your preferences as your own preferences. Mark your preferences to not have mobility, to say I have to wait for an hour for a bus and it only comes so when and so far and it only takes me to a couple of places. I live in a city where the buses come every 10 to 15 minutes, so I don't have that problem. I live in a city. Going where? Going where? Living where? In a city where lots of things are within walking distance, where it's relatively easy. Who lives there? What percentage Uh, of the population of Portland live there? Huh? What percentage? Five? Well, a, major- a majority of the city Five? of Portland. No, not 50%. 50% of the people in Portland do not live with that kind of service. You're, 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 come on. They're, those numbers oh, are just I actually not- know my city. I actually know my city. You'll, we'll have to take this offline and look at some statistics. But I well, Absolutely. Uh, and I have. Okay. Alan, uh, I know Portland, and only 8% of Portland area residents commute to work by transit. Uh, and, and Jarrett keeps talking about low-income people. What Portland has done and many other cities have done is they've recognized that low-income people aren't riding transit anymore. If your income is below $35,000 a year, you're significantly less likely to commute to work by transit in 2019 than you were in 2010. Instead, transit's growth market has been high-income people. The fastest growing market for transit has been people earning over $75,000 a year. And that's what Portland has been catering to. It's been catering to people living in high-income areas and and commuting to high-income areas. 
And it's still a very small percentage. It's only 8% of commuters in the Portland area. So, so really? uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it's great, Jared, that you live in a place where you can ride transit and you can walk to a coffee shop and stuff like that. You might be happy with that. Most people don't want that. And uh, we don't need to spend billions, tens of billions of dollars a year subsidizing the handful to do because mostly they're high income people. But Randall, you've just contradicted your other point, which is about people wanting to move out and live at lower density. In Portland, as in a lot of successful cities around this country, uh, um, money has chosen proximity. Money has chosen the inner city. It's exactly the opposite of what it was when you and I were children. Um, we have a problem with low-income access to transit, which is spatial. We have pushed low-income people out into inner ring suburbia, where the built environment is more hostile to them, the built environment is more hostile to transit, and they're doing what makes sense in that situation, which is in many cases experiencing very, very serious hardship. Uh, Portland's we're, is, we're, we're really scrambling to get service out into the, out of the, into the inner ring suburbs, and it's very difficult because they were built around cars and now they're full of people who can't afford cars. But um, so, you know, this whole notion that we know what people want, we know what what money wants, you know, I mean, yeah, the inner city of Portland is expensive because because the, it, the high cost of living in the inner city is the market screaming at us to build more places like that. That's how capitalism works. The high cost means we should be making more of that, more high density places. Yeah. <laughs> The high cost of living in the inner city is the market screaming that Portland should get rid of its urban growth boundary and allow more people to sprawl across the countryside. Uh, if they did that, we'd have a lot more affordable housing for everybody rather than uh, so-called affordable housing for a handful of people in the inner city. Yeah, so let me point out again, values. the reason that's those rich people want to ride that the transit, of course, is they don't want to drive. That's the thing that's going to be offered to them by what the thing that's supposed to be the subject of our discussion here. Um, this is the, the big question for me again. The advantage that transit had, it did offer people the ability not to drive. If your time is worth something to you, that's very important. So it's not surprising that those people have wanted to use that transit system in Portland. Um, it also offers you, it offers you a, a, a shorter time to the things in your life if it gets dedicated right away, but dedicated right away is not something inherent to transit. You could have private dedicated right away and allow vehicles to run inside it as long as they follow the rules. Um, so those things that are the advantages of transit, again, I think they're from the 20th century. Jared, what's, what is the, uh, what's the use of Lyft and Uber in, uh, in Portland? What's the, what's the growth? I don't have the numbers in my head. It, it's okay. grown fairly rapidly. A lot of people rely on it. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens to those services. Then. If you look at London, London's a, London's a great case study of, of what happens. We, I lived in London in 1972, 73. You could walk down the middle of the street. There were no cars. The only, the only cars that were on the streets were taxis, and right. then there were lots of buses. And you could take a bus and get someplace as opposed to the way it is now. When, when they decided that there was going to be congestion charging in London, that fewer people would be able to drive their cars. It didn't make any difference whatsoever. But what has happened since Uber and Uber, primarily Uber has come in, 35,000 more cars are driving around inside of London today. The, the, the average time it takes to make a journey by, by your own car or by an Uber has, has dropped significantly. And of course, that affects the buses. I mean, and so bus and what they've done in London is they cut out bus routes because they're just too ineffective. People just can walk faster than they can take the bus. So they're taking redeploying the buses from the center of London and 
out to the outskirts of, of uh, inner London. Well, to and, be fair, they're also building bus lanes. Uh, which is yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, the bus lanes, the <laughs> this is it, it just gets worse because the bus <laughs> lanes now have rickshaws and bicyclists and and you know everything else is the clogging it, so the buses aren't moving any faster in the in the bus lanes. Yeah, it's it's a it's a big struggle, but I, and again, we we have to share space efficiently, just like children need to share their toys. Yeah, it's it's the core of it. So, so you you think I, I've heard better numbers about congestion charging in London and other places. Now, I'm not a. I believe congestion charging is politically very difficult in many places. But I think that we now, because every car driving on the road has a smartphone in it, we have the opportunity again. Not yet here, uh, but we have the opportunity to do much better management of lanes than we do today. I mean, managed lanes actually do work in uh, reducing congestion, uh, and uh, I believe we could manage every lane if we wanted to, not by putting up meters, but by just having cell phones that say, if there's only 2,000 cars an hour who can take this lane, only 2,000 cars get to go in it. And we figure some way, whether it's pricing or allocation or any other system, to make sure that the uh, supply and demand match each other exactly, then you don't get induced demand anymore. I think there's a lot of potential for new technology to solve those old problems. Brad, when when you can fly again, come to Stockholm. We'll take the bus together. I've ridden the buses in Stockholm. I spent two to three months in Europe, except this year. I'm not going to. I'm a European citizen. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. okay. But it it sounds to me like a lot of the debate is is less about transit than it is about land use. Mm -hmm. Because that's what Jared's complaining about. Uh, You have, you know, know, the uh, the poor people have moved to places that transit doesn't serve well. So they're not served well. And and I've seen this in a lot of places where, uh, you do studies and uh, uh, transportation studies, and the thing the planners won't are not allowed to touch is changing land use. That's telling people where they should live. Yep. That, that's politically impossible to do, and without that, you're not going to make transit work well. Well, we're not. It's not just about telling people where they should live. It's about telling developers that they should, in any way, are, uh, um, alter the patterns that they're used to, and telling the bankers that they should alter the patterns that they're used to. Resistance to good land use planning is not just coming from individuals, although certainly some of it does. It also comes from just, you know, um, I mean, you want to talk about old fashioned stuck in the ways transit agencies. We can say the same thing about real estate bankers. Yeah. Um, Let me say we're we're getting near the end of the second half, the last half hour. Let me ask uh, Alan or others if you had any comments you want to make or things to touch on. We also have a ton of questions in the Q&A, so we can look at some of those. Uh, it's it's the Q and A. Unfortunately, go through go through so fast. It's hard to pick one of them out. If you see one there you like, go ahead and do it. I mean, there, there's. I just I, I always prefer to get these things more interactive. But uh, Jarrett, why not instead of buses in many of these places, just subsidize Uberpool and Lyft Line and so on? Um, good question. Um, Uber, uh, um, I use Uber. I, I use Lyft a lot, and I use buses a lot. Um, and one of the key differences is the level of training involved. Um, there's been a lot of talk, uh, been a lot of experimentation. There's many transit agencies have tried this, using Uber and Lyft, for example, to replace public transit, replace low ridership public transit. It is being tried in many places. Um, many uh, transit agencies have particularly looked at doing this for paratransit. Um, there are significant differences associated with training and skill that uh, that explain much of the difference in cost. Uber 
thrives to the extent that you've got a company that loses billions a year can be said to be thriving. Um, Uber thrives on driving costs into the ground. And um, transit agencies, you can, you can blame the fact that transit drivers are making a living wage on the unions, or you can simply say transit agencies train drivers Drivers are held to rather high standards. Drivers of paratransit services, for sure. example, are trained to de actually deal with the issues of frail elders, and and you have to pay some money for that. And we get what we pay. Yeah, for. I said I said subsidize, right? Yeah. Pay more, pay more for it. Only accept drivers who've met a certain grade. I mean, I find. But many that's not Uber and Lyft. That's not Uber and Lyft. Well, it, it is though. Many people but, report that Uber and Lyft are better than cabs, for example. That because there's a feedback system, your, uh, Uber your drivers. <laughs> You're my I, it's, I certainly <laughs> think so, and I, and, and, I mean, I see so much reckless driving on Lyft. It's just, it's just appalling. Um, but, <laughs> but, but anyway, here's the point. Well, well, Jared, you must have experiences that are different than the rest of us. Uh, first of all, there's nobody that suggested that, uh, that Uber and Lyft drivers should not get living wages. And in fact, the fundamental problem with Uber and Lyft is that they don't provide living wages to their uh, employees, and therefore they aren't fair competition. And they certainly do deserve public subsidies so that, in fact, they do provide a living wage uh, to the people that provide the service. And the fundamental problem with transit agencies is that they have a union, which is good. People deserve a living wage to do it. The problem is that their productivity in delivering trips that actually provide uh, uh, a quality service and an improvement in quality of life just doesn't exist for them. And therefore, that's what needs to be changed. They Again, need to be able to provide a product that, in fact, is, is a competitive product. And they're not. It depends on where you are, Alan. Yeah. Okay. In Manhattan, sure. Okay. In a couple, in in London, sure. In essentially everywhere else in the United States, in in the billion other daily trips that take place in the United States, the transit agencies aren't able to go in there and compete for it. Well, it's not a in Portland. It's not a competition. In Portland, it's 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 protect. It's making the city functional. And that is, that is not about how many It doesn't make it. You're, you're, you're going to a higher good, and it's not actually making the city functional. It just doesn't. And, in fact, after COVID, probably the biggest problem that exists is that all the high-density workplaces, not all, many of them are going to disappear. And so the, the, the issue of living close to a high-density workplace will no longer exist. And, and Randy is going to be as totally right, unfortunately. What's going to happen to your classroom? I mean, your, your classroom's higher density than most offices. Right. Yeah, our classroom. And uh, yeah, to bring that out, apparently our student body uh, just did a survey. 64% uh, of the students at Princeton are, are, will seriously consider taking a gap year if they're not on campus. Hmm. Man, uh, you talk about, uh, hey, guess what? The clientele may have spoken in terms of the quality yeah. of education that we provided in the last six weeks. They're not going to Europe for their gap year, though. So That's right. That's true. Maybe they can. Yep. 
This is Cara. I was just thinking that they may want to come to UT where tuition's a lot lower, Alan. And <laughs> they probably are. are, 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 are going to, well, I mean, we're, our, our market is, I mean, we cannot become the Princeton University of Phoenix. I mean, my goodness, uh, that would, um, that, then it's over. Right. So to avoid um, or to remain solvent, universities will have on campus classes, they're going to nix all the super big ones and they're going to use bigger rooms. So they're going to have to spread out the schedule, I think, to try to get classes into at least triple seating situations and still have uh, remote participation opportunities. So we'll have cameras on our podia and we may not allow everybody in. So they may rotate in. Um, and then our most senior, you know, our elderly faculty may uh, choose to uh, participate only remotely. So that's still up in the air. <laughs> it's a good thing that I'm only 39 and therefore I won't be one of those old guys. And and can you imagine we're going to spread them out in the classroom? But what do they do every time they get together on on every evening and whatever they're you know, in there? Once, once, you, once you say the C word, once you say the C word, it takes over the conversation completely. Yeah. And we're getting near the end of the third third half hour um randall did you have any last minute comments you wanted to make or uh well not really i did want to mention somebody was talking about congestion pricing and i just wanted to mention that what london has and what uh new york has is not congestion pricing it's cordon pricing which is something completely different it doesn't work to relieve congestion it's merely a fundraising tool for things like urban transit I support congestion pricing. I oppose cordon pricing. Oh, I think you're right. And any other last minute comments before we uh, close the door? Uh, again, it's, it's active debate as always. Fred, do you want to give a final? Absolutely, Dick. Uh, a good, a good discussion. It's too bad we couldn't get to a lot more of the comments, but there's been an interesting side debate going on for people who are paying attention to the comments. This has been the future of public road transit, the best of times or the toughest of times. We hope you've enjoyed it. And we'll be back, as we said, in the, with more in about four weeks. And if you have thoughts about topics and participants, please send them along. You can find us at zoom-tank.com and at smartdrivingcar.com. Don't forget that the Automated Vehicle Symposium still is scheduled to take place the end of July in San Diego. You can get more information about that at automatedvehiclessymposium.org. Thank you very much for taking part, and we hope you stay healthy and safe.